Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and welcome to episode 23. Before I get to my most excellent guest this week, Mr. Craig Peters, a wrestling magazine legend and wrestling photography legend. I have a few things I wanted to talk about this week. Uh, One being that as you're listening to this, depending on how early you're listening to this, I am mere uh, days or hours away from appearing at the Milford Barnes & Noble in Milford, Connecticut, for those in the local New York tri-state area. I'll be signing copies of Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. And I may be talking a little bit about the book or or reading excerpts from the book. I'm not really sure yet. But that is going to be Friday, July 8th, from 5 to 7 p.m. Again, that's at the Milford Barnes & Noble. So if you happen to be in the area and it's not too late and you're not listening to this after the fact, Maybe come on down and and get a book, and maybe we can talk a little bit about it as well. Hope to see you then. Um, Also want to mention something that I hope you will take a listen to if you have a chance, and if you happen to be a wrestling observer or figure four online subscriber, um, I was recently a guest on Wrestling Observer Radio with Dave Meltzer. Uh, It is the July 2nd edition of Wrestling Observer Radio. If you go to the website, we talked about a, a few things, mainly the Sheik and the significance of the Sheik, and we talked about my book, and we talked a little bit about some of the Vince McMahon uh, shenanigans that have been going down lately related to WWE and and related to my experience from working there. So you might want to give that a listen. Uh, It it was a lot of fun talking to Dave, as always. And finally, also want to say in follow up to what I said last week about that new October issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated um, with my story on Dusty and Cody Rhodes in in that issue, um, I got my hands on the physical copy of the magazine this week, and it looks beautiful. And again, I can't stress enough that you're going to want to pick this up, especially if you love um, historical wrestling and how it sort of sometimes links into present day wrestling. Um, It was a story that uh, was very important to me to write. And uh, maybe you might want to check that out. So the, the October edition of PWI is currently available in digital form. And you can get it at pwi-online.com. The physical form of the magazine, the the printed paper edition, will be available in about another week. So keep looking for that. You should be able to pre-order it at the PWI website as well. But enough about that. Enough about me. Let's get to conversation number 23 for episode number 23 of Shut Up and Wrestle. Um, I've been doing these these PWI luminaries, right? And this is the latest one. So Craig Peters has a great story that you may not know as much about as you may know about uh, for people like like Bill After, who was kind of his partner in crime for many years. We talked about 
his years working there at the London publishing offices and how it was just as much fun as you imagine it would be. Uh, crazy things about, you know, did you know that Craig was in the room, in the hotel room with Andy Kaufman and Jerry Lawler before the late night with David Letterman appearance when they were planning out what they were going to do on Dave's show? I sure didn't know that, but I found out from talking to Craig. So that and many other very, very fascinating tidbits await you if you take a listen to the conversation that I am about to take you to right now. It's now my pleasure to welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle another of the what I like to call the the legends of Pro Wrestling Illustrated and really of the whole London publishing now Kappa publishing family of wrestling magazines. Uh, somebody who was an editor on some of your favorite wrestling magazines, Inside Wrestling, The Wrestler, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, all through the 80s and well into the 90s. Also, I have to say, in, in his own right, one of the most uh, well-known and revered wrestling photographers, really, that there have ever been, because he, he's really taken some of the most memorable wrestling photos, whether you know it was him taking them or not, it was him. And he also had one of the greatest white man Afros of all time, once upon a time. <laughs> and that is Mr. Craig, Craig Peters. Welcome, Craig hey, Peters. Brian. <laughs> Love the intro. Thank you, sir. You're uh, very yeah, welcome. Yeah, the photo of uh, Jimmy Snuka on top of the cage in Madison Square Garden, ready to uh, do the superfly onto Backland. Probably the most printed photo in the PWI family of magazines. Um, yeah. I wish I got residuals on that one, but yeah, yeah. It took a few photos in my day. That was, that was one of the, one of the fun things about working for the magazines. I know that is, I mean, even reading the magazines and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this, uh, you, you know, the exact photo we're talking about. So it's kind of funny because the, the match that everybody talks about because of Mick Foley and everything is always that, that Morocco steel cage match at the garden where, um, where Snuka actually hits the top, the, the splash from the top of the cage on Morocco after the bell. But the match right. where you got that shot, and it's that famous shot where Snuka is standing on top of the cage. He's got his arms out in the I love you sign, and he's about to make the leap, and he actually missed, right? Isn't that right? Yeah, he did miss. Backlund rolled. It was a title match, as I recall. And Backlund rolled out of the way, um, retained the belt, but... Holy mackerel was, you know, the, the, the noise in the garden. It was just incredible. And I, I want to say that was, oh boy, 83. I My don't fading memory isn't. Yeah. Isn't I don't mean to be that. I'm not going to be that, that obnoxious guy, but, but I think it was 82. I think it was <laughs> 82. It could have been 82. Yeah. I think it was summer 82. You know why I think that I remember when I was doing research for some project or other, I don't even remember what. And I was trying to figure out because, you know, uh, Vince McMahon Jr. bought the, the company from his father in, in 1982. Right. And actually, it was in June of 82. And I think I remember taking note of the fact that that card with Snuka and Backlund in the cage and Snuka jumping off, I believe it was the first Madison Square Garden card that happened after Vince had bought the company. Oh, OK. Interesting. That yeah, could very well be. You know, you know, memory is a weird thing, and you know, as as uh, <laughs> as I get older, it gets weirder. But um, you know, for years, um, I had I had some uh, some good friends who were not 
not involved in the magazines or the business at all. Just sort of you know, like friends of friends or friends of family. And uh, he'll he'll go unspecified, but there was there was one close um, sort of a family member, not directly, but um, he was at the garden that night, and he swore up and down, and to this day will swear that Snooker did a flip on the way down off the cage to hitting Backlund, which of course he didn't. Right. But you know, it's interesting how people remember things. And the other thing too is, I think that show was one of the rare times that they didn't show the card on television on the msg network because because i don't think i've ever seen it I, I don't know if it's ever i could be completely wrong on this but have you ever actually seen it on other than being there i you know i have not and, I'm, and as we're talking about it i'm trying to remember i think Boy, you know, again, time frames. I'm trying to remember if, if was Buddy Rogers with Snuka for that match, or did that come a little bit later? I think that was right in that time period where he was with him. It was yes. close. Yeah, it was yeah. close, but I don't know if he was with him for that. Oh, time. you know what? No, he wouldn't have been because Buddy came to Snuka when Snuka had turned face, and he was still a heel when he was wrestling Backlund. So I don't think Rogers would have been there, actually. Yeah, uh, good point. Yep, absolutely. That's why I need somebody like you to help sort of tweak the memory in the right direction. <laughs> I'm the I'm like the research guy they always have on these shows where there's a guy in the background who provides all the facts and info, except I'm also actually the host at the same time. So it's very weird. Well, and, and even if you can't remember it, at least you hear it and you go, well, that doesn't sound right. Let me go check. But I have to say, because, you know, we're since we're talking about the wrestling magazines of that era, and like I said, um, that photo is so well known to anybody who read Pro Wrestling Illustrated or the other London magazines in the 80s and 90s and even beyond. You know, it's one of those great photos. I mean, in the wrestling world, it's like, you know, Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston and and that kind of thing. I mean, it's like that kind of a photo, you know. And I always remember when I would look back at old shows in all different territories too, but mo- but especially MSG, I always remember there'd be people you'd always see ringside shooting and you're one of those people. And I just think like, well, it's like you and Bill and George Napolitano and, uh, and, and there are others too that I'm, I'm, you know, Oh God. It, well, and Stu was around the ring. At yeah. The and Paul Heyman. Of course. Right. Heyman. And, and of yeah. course um, there's, there's and you um, had the Japanese photographers, Jimmy Suzuki. Right. Others. Yep. And, and Shun Yamaguchi and um, exactly. Yeah. And you know yeah. it, it was great. Like I, I always thought, and and I, I understand why, um, you know why they kicked the photographers off the ring when all of that happened in the mid '80s. But you know there was always, I think, a flavor. And yeah, I, I don't say that selfishly. Like, hey, yeah, we really wanted to be around the ring. But you know, when, when you have a whole group of photographers scrambling to get the shot, it just it, it sort of lends um, an air of this thing is really important. Yeah. to it all versus one or two photographers around that are approved and, and getting the photo. I think having that group at ringside just, just sort of added some flavor to the event that, uh, that was really nice. I mean, you see it in boxing all the time and other events, but. Right. It really, it was a turning point. Cause it's such a, it's a, it's a very different kind of philosophy where the thinking always was, you know, if we're, if we're trying to make this mimic, um, <clears throat> you know, like a sporting event, Having these right. guys here snapping away and trying to get the shot, like you said, it makes it look important. 
But if you're looking at it as, and I, I've had this conversation with Bill too, it, it, if you're looking at it like a TV show, you know, like people like Kevin Dunn do, who's the producer of most WWE's TV for many, many years, then, you know, you're not looking at it as a sporting event. You're thinking, and, and I'm not saying I agree with this view, but it's like, you're thinking I'm producing a television show and I can't have these guys in my shot. And that exactly. way of thinking is really what prevailed in the end. But it but it results in, like you say, this very like sterile kind of environment where you don't feel like you're watching something that's truly, really unfolding in real life anymore. It's very much like you're watching, you know, a Broadway play or the circus or something. You know what I mean? It, it's it's right. like a packaged piece of entertainment much more now than it was I, and i did a lot of photography for the circus too so you know <laughs> now when but when you did that were you were you a, were you working for the circus or were you talking about yeah like, see but well, that's yeah the, no, that's no that thing. was i mean i mean we're i mean i don't know if we're jumping ahead in the conversation or or if we oh we go all over the around like no, crazy we're here we're good but yeah when when i left the magazines in 96 that's what i did i ran away and joined the circus <laughs> um, I became, uh, I managed all of the content marketing for digital content marketing, I should say, uh, for Feld Entertainment, the largest producer of live entertainment in the world. They owned Ringling Brothers Barn and Bailey Circus, which was mostly what I worked on. Um, but also I worked on Disney and Ice, Siegfried and Roy, um, a bunch of other stuff. And I mean, I, I was there for nine years and it was, it was a great time. I mean, in, in its own way, it, it was as much fun as working at the magazines was. And but, I, I think uh, that's I, the we way could save those stories for a circus podcast <laughs> or maybe <laughs> yeah, get into my... them later. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure the listeners don't want to necessarily hear about uh, circus stories. Those, you, you can't spend, uh, you know, 10 years almost around the circus and not, uh, not have a few. Although I will say this, there, there's actually a lot of wrestling and circus tie in. And it was 1982, I believe, because um, I joined the magazines in 81. That's when I first met Bill Apter. And we got to be uh, very good friends, very good friends to this day. And uh, in fact, I was there when Bill met his wife of however many years it is now. Uh, up on uh, 35, somewhere in there, 40. But. Yeah, I was there. It was at Benihana in New York. And, uh, you know, so it's like eight people sitting around. Bill and I went and his wife-to-be was there. And he used the oldest line in the book. And I was cringing, but he turned to her and said, you know, haven't I seen you somewhere before? And I was just dying inside. But son of a gun, it worked. And, you know, they started going out and, and they're married to this day. Bill Apter, uh, ladies' I mean, man. Amazing. You heard, oh, it, here. Man. <laughs> you heard it here first. Bill Apter, right. the ladies' man. But, but so, um, yeah, so, so we met in 81, and, and in 82, Bill and uh, his wife-to-be at the time, and myself and my wife-to-be at the time, the four of us went up to see Ringling Brothers Circus in uh, Connecticut. And Bill had a friend, a uh, guy's name is Chuck Sidlow, um, who was boss clown for Ring the Brothers Circus. Um, Chuck Sidlow was basically raised by uh, Mr. Fuji and Terry Funk. Oh, my God. Uh, what that, very that, close poor child. that poor and child. Chuck has a, he has a million stories about wrestling and, and another million about the circus. And Chuck is just one of the, one of the all-time great people. 
and uh, yeah, it was it was really interesting, right? So in 1982, you know, here's here's Bill and the circus and wrestling and the whole bit, and then you know a decade and a half later, I'm running away to join the circus and you know sort of taking it full circle. So well, you of, know, a lot, a lot of wrestling and circus crossover. Yeah, well, there is because, you know, like you're saying, when you went to work for them officially, see now that because I worked for Vince McMahon, you know, directly in the company in WWE. And the thinking there is not that different because the way he looked at it in terms of like why I only want my own photographers there was he was thinking of it the same way too, like Ringling Brothers Circus has their official photographers, you know, uh, Disney on ice, let's say, has their official photographers. They don't have um, outside media photographers running around snapping their own pictures. They, they don't allow that. And Vince looked at his product the same exact way. Uh, that was his view exactly. on it. And But I mean, what you guys had going on, and I have to say, and I think I've said this to you before when we've communicated and stuff, it's just incredible to me because getting to be a photographer meant that you got to be physically present you know at so many incredible moments in wrestling in that era you right. were there because it was your job to be there it's just fantastic whenever i'm watching some historic match i'll look around the ring and go like damn it there they are again holy cow could you imagine like witnessing that much from just a few feet away it's incredible to me well, well, you know, that was the great thing about working for, um, you know, what, what people call the after mags or call them the Weston mags or the PWI family magazines, you know, however you want to categorize them, um, particularly in those days. Right. So so when I started in 81, um, I got out of college and I sent my resume around to pretty much anything and everything I could find. Um, I knew I wanted to do something in media. I had no idea what it was. I was on the college newspaper, the college radio station. So I was sending resumes all over the place. Um, I sent one. I saw this ad in Newsday, the Long Island newspaper, and uh, ad for London Publishing with magazine publisher. All right. So I sent them a resume. I got a call back from Peter King. Hey, like your resume. want you to come in for an interview. I said, all right, what kind of magazines do you do? We do pro wrestling and boxing magazines. Uh, I don't know. Let me think about it. And uh, about a week or two later, he called me back a second time and said, we want you to come in and interview. I had nothing else going on at the time. So I said, all right, what the heck? And I went in really not expecting to be there for very long. Um, I was not, I mean, I'd seen wrestling on TV and um, I've been to the matches a couple of times. But it wasn't really my thing in the way like Stu Sachs, for example, you know, mm. he did a wrestling newsletter. He was right. a big, big fan. Fan uh, clubs and things. The magazines. Yeah, the whole yeah. thing. Um, my thing was comic books mm. <laughs> when I was a kid, <laughs> not pro wrestling, which, again, is really not that different. You know, one's in print, one's flesh and blood. Right. Um, but, you know, Pete called me back. I went in for the interview and he said, all right, the job is to be a writer and you're going to write three 1,000-word stories a day, every day. All right, I'll give this a shot. And, you know, I, I figured it was going to be for a couple of months. It turned out to be for 15 years. And the, the beauty of the company, though, was if you, if you had ideas, if, you, you know, if things came along that needed to be done and you stepped up, you could do them. 
So, you know, we needed uh, another body to go out and do photos. Well, I did a little photography, but, you know, hey, Bill was there. He was willing to teach me. I wanted to learn. And I would go on the road with him. And I would, you know, he would shoot color. I would shoot black and white. And we became a team. You know, we needed marketing to be done for the magazines. I would come up with ideas for, um, let's do merchandising. Let's do a TV commercial. Let's do, and you know, not that I came up with all the ideas, of course, but, you know, ideas would come across our radar or someone who come up with them, you know, who's, who's going to do this? Yeah, I'll, I'll dive into that and give it a shot. So, you know, you weren't necessarily pigeonholed at the magazine. You know, you could, if, if you wanted to try and, ex, you know, expand your skills, you know, do something that's going to expand the audience in the magazine, you know, it was welcome. And that was kind of, and I've heard Stu talk about this and others, you know, that was really Stanley Weston's um, genius, so to say. Right. I mean, he knew he hired good people and he got out of their way and he didn't micromanage and he just let us do our thing. And if our thing made money, which certainly in the mid 80s, um, I mean, we rode the wave like crazy. Uh, you know, it made money. He was very happy and he just stayed out of our way and, and let us do our work. And it was a great place to work for us. But you guys also had to get around the whole thing that happened there in the mid 80s where all of a sudden you were losing access to WWF and you're losing access to it just at the moment when it's becoming the hottest, you know, wrestling in the business. And so, right. I think what, I guess what started happening from an outside perspective is there was, you know, there was a lot more emphasis on some of the other companies where you had more access, like Jim Crockett promotions definitely comes to mind, you know, in the mid Atlantic, but also when you were covering WWF, a lot of times it seems like you had to find photography of the WWF talent, but photography that you had of them from before they went to the WWF, you know what I mean? Exactly. Like, like there'd be a lot of AWA Hulk Hogan pictures in there. Yeah, <laughs> right. And, you know, you'd use the headshots and you'd use the poses and, you know, maybe you'd be able to squeeze one shot out of a match or, you know, we'd have, you know, people would send us photos or people would be shooting from the stands, that sort of thing. I mean, it was, it was certainly not as easy as it was, um, you know, before we got moved off ringside, but, um, you know, we, we made it happen. I think maybe more difficult than the photography issue and, you know, all credit to Bill Apter for, um, you know, for managing that situation, uh, you know, because, you know, everyone knows that Bill is just, you know, the photographer and, um, you know, the man when it comes to those magazines. But, you know, beyond the photography, he, he, was, the, he was the company's liaison between the magazines and the business. And, um, you know, he had the relationships with all the wrestlers and, you know, he knew that he knew the guys. And, you know, if a guy was thinking about moving to WWF, Bill would know before they got there. So mm. he might be able to schedule a studio <clears throat> session. Um, oh, that's get great. Some, wow. You know, get some photos and, you know, Vince would give him a new gimmick. So, you know, maybe the studio session wasn't 100 percent usable, but, you know, you get some face shots out of the deal. But maybe even more so than the photography was um, quoting the wrestlers came a lot more difficult right um, once they got to WWF because we didn't we didn't really have the same kind of latitude that we had um, with non WWF wrestlers so 
you know, a close reading of the magazines in those days will show that um, there there suddenly became uh, a, a number of experts that were quoted when it came to WWF storylines. <laughs> Dr. So, Sidney M. Basil? Dr. Sidney M. Basil, yes, indeed. Um, I think there was Thomas Pilliard uh, yes. was another one. Yes. Um, and, oh, what, oh, Zenit Abraham, who was a... Uh, who, who was like the wrestling astrologer got quoted occasionally. So, can yeah, I tell work. you, can I tell you something? We, we used to use Dr. Sidney M. Basil in WWF magazine when I was there because a no lot, way. I did yes, not know that because a lot That's of us, awesome. you know, because when I worked there was after the, when you were working at, at PWI, like I was there in the two thousands and, but so many of the people I worked with, grew up as fans and they read um the a lot of you know other wrestling magazines specifically the 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 western ones and we were in a lot of ways trying to copy the tone of what you guys were doing and that was one of the things we would do is use dr sydney m basil i I can't think of a good example i think we might have had him psychoanalyze uh scott steiner once when he was big (laughs) pop-up pump Something like that. We would definitely, we would definitely quote them. And I remember when. Well, when we didn't to, have an exclusive contract with him, so it was nice to see he was getting work elsewhere. Well, when yeah, I, the, you know, him. they recently brought him back <laughs> in PWI to. I know, I know, you don't really follow the current product, but there's a there's a top heel in AEW right now uh, named. Well, I don't know what his status is currently, but named MJF Maxwell Jacob Friedman, and he's just okay. like a complete sociopath. And and they had um, Doctor Sidney Basil analyze him, which he he came out of retirement. I don't know how old this guy is. I have to tell you, but uh, I'll tell you he, what. I will I will be able to to die peacefully if I see an episode of Dark Side of the Ring. And there's Dr. Sidney M. Basil, like in shadow, psychoanalyzing somebody or something. That would be great. That really would. Well, the vice producers listening to this, come on, you got to make that happen. I'm just hoping they bring it back for another season. It seems to be so up in the air. Do you watch yeah, that show? That. Like, like I watched that show with my wife, and and my wife is, you know, bless her heart, it's, she sort of feels like it's like she has the director's commentary on because I keep, I keep pausing it and I'll go, Oh, you know, that's a lot of BS. That didn't really happen like that. Or here's the real story of this, or here's what right. you're leaving out. Or do you find yourself watching that and remembering things from your time in the business and, and relating to it because of things you remember hearing about or seeing, does that ever happen? A little bit. You know, I, I watched most of the episodes. I, I don't think I missed too many of them. Um, but actually the one that really sticks out, to me was um the von erics episode mm, yes and all of the interview material with kevin and i just i i i watched it again it sort of brought back a lot of memories but um you know it seemed like kevin and, and again you know how, how much is edited for tv how much is edited out you don't you know any any interview like that i guess sort of shows the tip of the iceberg but it seemed like Kevin found some level of, of peace and happiness in his life. And I was really happy for him for that. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's just one of the all time. I, I, that it could be a movie. I mean, it's just, just one of the all time mind blowing stories of, of wrestling history. Yeah, it, it really is. It's it, it just but, so much tragedy. Did you, did you guys ever get to go down there and shoot a lot of their stuff? You were at you yeah, were at I, I, were you at Texas Stadium? Texas, yeah, 
for I was Flair and Von Erich. It was like yeah. 100 and some odd degrees ringside for Von Erich Flair. And yeah, I was there with Bill. Um, and I remember it was, it was hot as hell at ringside. It was a great card. Um, just a great atmosphere. And people in the front rows literally crying um, when the belt switched. And it was, it, it was fantastic. Just one of the great events. Yeah. Yeah. That's one Again, of those it was, things. It was like you were saying before, you know, to, the, the, the camera sort of got me to be places, you know, where, you know, most people ordinarily wouldn't have been. And that was absolutely one of them. But, yeah, and and uh, it was also because you were getting to go to all different territories and do it. I mean, yeah. you know, fans didn't really get to do that. You didn't get to just jet from one region to another and sit ringside and watch, you know, some of the most famous matches ever. But, you know, as a photographer for a magazine, you're going you're doing it. You're going all over to all these different companies back when there were a bunch of different companies all yep. over the country. And then- and then for a while, Bill and I were doing the uh, PWI press conference. Uh, did him yeah. in, we did them in Florida with Dusty. We did them in, we, most notably, we did them in TBS, Georgia, with Gordon Soley. And uh, Ole Anderson sort of helped us make those happen. And there's some great embarrassing video on YouTube for those. Um, but, you know... It, Again, like you mentioned earlier about the, how, how, the, how the camera sort of takes you to these places, not just the matches. Um, maybe one of the best non-match things was, uh, you know, Bill and I were in um, David Letterman's studio during the infamous Andy Kaufman, Jerry Lawler situation. And Bill was shooting color. I was shooting black and white. And uh, the moment the episode was done taping, we literally ran through the streets of New York. And as I recall, I think it was, I want to say the New York Post. It might have been the Daily News, but I think it was the offices of the New York Post that let us go up there and develop the film. And they used my photo on the front page the next day. Yes. That, that was sort of the thank you for, for getting the film uh, done very quickly. But yeah, so to sort of be you know, front row center for a moment like that was phenomenal. I didn't know that you guys were there for that. I mean, I know the photo you're talking about. And I always remember thinking too, like who took that photo? I never knew that because, you know, you usually don't see still photography, especially from that era of talk show appearances, you you know? Yep. In fact, one of the coolest things I love about that whole situation was, um, Box Brown, who's a uh, graphic artist, he did an Andre the Giant graphic novel biography. He also did one of um, Andy Kaufman, and he documents the whole <laughs> the whole story in the Andy Kaufman biography. I actually commissioned Box. He's he's Philly local, and uh, I commissioned him to do sort of like a one page Craig Peters wrestling career comic strip for me. And yeah, he included that in there. It was it's pretty cool. And I'm assuming since Bill and Andy were so close that you had to have spent some time around him, would that assumption be correct? That would be correct. Yeah, we were. <laughs> Bill and I were. I don't think I'm telling any tales out of school, especially you know this long after the fact. But yeah, Bill and I were in the hotel room um, with Andy and Jerry the afternoon before the taping. Oh, that's great. So, you know what? what's crazy about that it is... kind of blows my mind. But it's funny I'll you mentioned... I'll tell you another weird story. Yeah, go on. Here, here's a, here, here, 
wrestling circus crossover. Here's here's a very strange story about that. So, I believe the, another guest on the Letterman show. So now this is '83. This happened. Um, the lead guest on that episode of Letterman was Stephen King. Stephen King was on there to promote Creepshow, which was sort of a comic book, kind of a throwback movie. If anybody's sure. a fan of those old EC comics from the 50s. It's sort of a, a version of that. Um, so Stephen King's on the show. Stephen King's PR rep was a person by the name of Barbara Flukaft. It was Barbara Flukaft who brought me, who I didn't know at that time in 83, but I met years later in 93, 94, and she's the person that got me my job at the circus. Wow. 96. <laughs> and she was there then. That's very crazy. strange, sort of weird, small world, full circle kind of connection. Yeah. Did you guys have any interaction with Stephen King at all on that show, or or Law no, no, or anything? No, not at all. I mean, I, I might have seen him in the green room. I mean that that would have no had to be yeah. that would be one heck of a green room. With you got Stephen King, Jerry Lawler, and Andy Kaufman in a green <laughs> Andy room. Andy Kaufman, I know. Because also, you know, I don't know. I, I've I've read a lot of Stephen King, and and one thing, and even in the movie Creep Show, one thing I always noted was. He seems to have been a wrestling fan because there's a lot of wrestling mentions in his books, especially like 70s era, 60s, 70s, WWF. Um, there's even a scene in Creepshow where his character is watching WWF wrestling on TV. So that's why I asked right. that question. I, I, I almost wondered if maybe Stephen King would have been marking out for Jerry Lawler. You know, you never know. He, pro he probably was. I mean, if, if, if he was, I, I didn't see it. Or if, if I saw it, I don't remember it. But yeah. And that was, to me, that was Andy Kaufman's sort of singular genius about comedy as well, was he brought, he sort of brought the pro wrestling sensibility to comedy way that nobody did and uh, just like pulled it off in extreme. And nobody really knew what that was, what he was doing. I mean, any... Anybody who knew the wrestling business could look at Andy's comedy and realize, oh, that's what he's doing. But, you know, unless you knew the wrestling business really well, you would just look at Andy and go, what the heck is this? What, what is happening here? Right. Um, but, yeah, he blended the two and, and it was, he was genius at it. So. And it was also yeah, one it of the it was, cool. it was one of the best kept secrets, too, because, um, you know, I remember when Man on the Moon came out, it was considered such a major revelation. I don't know if you ever seen the movie, but they have that. There's a yeah. scene where Jerry and Andy played by Jim Carrey, where they reveal them sitting together, planning the whole thing out. And it was meant to be this shocking revelation, which it's kind of quaint to think about now, but at the time I think it was because people, it's not that people thought it was, oh, it's 100% um, real what's happening here. But there was always that mystery of what exactly is happening. And because you and Bill were so close to it, like you said, you're in the hotel room with Lawler and Kaufman. You really were on the inside of something that was a mystery to most people for many years. Well, and, you know, history kind of repeats itself. And I wonder how many people saw what happened at the Oscars with uh chris rock and, and will smith and, and thought oh it's it's calvin lawler all over again 
<laughs> another slap, right? That was it. Was my first reaction, quite honestly. You know, I I'm, I've sort of backed off that a little bit since yeah. then. Yeah. You know well, what? I look at it five and I years go, from now. If it comes out that the whole thing was a work, it wouldn't surprise me in the least. Right. I mean, not that I want to go down that rabbit hole because I can't imagine the hate mail I'll be getting or whatever. But yeah. But but I do remember, like, I thought it for a second. You know, especially when I heard a loud noise from the slap and I'm like, where'd that noise come from? But then I realized, well, he's right. got a microphone about two inches away from his face. But, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, I, I don't know. I, I'm going to take a firm stand on this. I think you need to be kind of silly if you think that that was somehow planned between the two of them. I don't see how it benefits anyone in any way. Anything, yeah, I, it, I don't either. I, it's it probably ruined Will Smith's career or at least derailed it yeah. for a little while. But but but, you know, it's funny because of I think a lot of times it's because of worked shoots in wrestling and things like Andy Kaufman and Jerry Lawler and other other things that maybe sometimes conditions people to be um, uh, cynical or suspicious when things like that happen, because you're thinking, oh, my God, is this another work? But 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 you were you got to see firsthand. I You know, I didn't know. I knew Bill was that close to it. I didn't know that you were that close to it, too. Yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, I mean, I, I was, I was that close to it by virtue of just, hey, me and Bill are going to go out and do all this stuff. Right. Um, it was, it, it was, it was like a fun place to be in the sense of, I was sort of Bill's, um, Bill's shadow <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> and um, to get back to the photography thing of it, I mean, anybody who's met Bill um, knows well how full of personality he is. Um, you know, he does his Jerry Lewis impressions and he loves Laurel and Hardy yes. and, you know, he's a comedian at heart and he's all energy and he's just this, he's a very unique personality and I love him the bits and he's just, he's Bill. <laughs> if you've met him, that's the only way to describe him. He's Bill. He's wonderful. But yeah. He is. He's, he's fantastic. I can't say enough about him. He called but me the other day. You, and, yeah. Go on, Craig. Sorry. No, no, please. Go ahead. No, I was going to say he called me the other day and, you know, we were talking about a few things and I had to I was I was kind of gently trying to get off the phone because I was putting my son to bed, who's five years old. And, you know, we were we were watching Mary Poppins, the movie Mary Poppins. So he said, OK, put me on speakerphone and, and bring the phone over to where your son is. So I said, OK, I put him on speakerphone. All of a sudden he starts talking to my son in the voice of Cookie Big Monster. Oh, Cookie Monster. Cookie okay, Monster. Yeah. That yep. you would think it really was Cookie Monster. And he's and he's singing the songs from Mary Poppins as Cookie Monster. <laughs> and my son, Perfect. who again is five, but he, he truly believes that he's on the phone with Cookie Monster. And he helped me that night put my son to bed. I mean, it, it, if that's not a mensch, I don't know what is. So that's that's pure bill right there. So the thing that's that's so now you take that and now you think about, OK, I need to take photographs, say studio photographs, right? A wrestler posed against a plain background. And I need to get a bunch of pictures of this guy. And this wrestler, and knowing wrestlers, the last thing they want to do is stand around for 20 minutes in the right. background and pose for photos. So it's kind of the hardest thing in the world to get these guys to do it. But when you take a personality of Bill Apter and the way he interacts with people, and the way he's able to, you know, engage and get them to relax and get them to laugh and sort of put them off there. I mean, it, it really was sort of a master class in how a photographer works with a subject, 
watching Bill work with the wrestlers in that kind of a setting. Right. Um, and I just, just watching him do that stuff, I learned so much. I mean, I could never duplicate it. Nobody ever could. <laughs> but, you know, when, when you read stories of, you know, any, any photographer, I mean, I, mean, I mean, take your pick of, like, the best photographers in the world that shoot celebrities, um, you know, it sort of makes me think a little deeper about what that relationship between photographer and subject is and how to get the subject at ease and get the photo that you want. And uh, Bill always got the photo that he wanted. And, you know, um, well, I mean, yeah, because they all trusted him. That's the thing. He, ha he exactly. built that rapport exactly. and that trust. Uh, I mean, everyone all the way up to Hulk Hogan. I mean, they, he was yep. he was the guy, you know, they they confided in him and and uh, that relationship. And I've said this to him, too, is more valuable than than any than any article, than any photo, you know, creating that relationship is probably the, the the most valuable thing that he's ever done. And, and and traveling with Bill as much as I did, you know, I would go into dressing rooms with him and it'd be, oh, Bill. And then I'd get the skunk guy. Go, Who's <laughs> this guy? And Bill, yeah. no, he's okay. He's okay. And if Bill said you were okay, you were okay. So, you know, I became pretty good friends with the Road Warriors, Paul Ellering, mm. Nikita Koloff, um, Jim Cornette, a bunch of others. And, uh, you know, it it was nice. You know, I, I never came close to, you know, 1% of the kind of uh, acceptance or, or influence that, that Bill had. Um, but I got a little taste of it and it was nice. It was, it was fun. But I will say this, though, and I think I briefly mentioned this to you once when I because every now and then I'll be watching an old show and I'll see something or hear something. And if I know the person, I'll just randomly, you know, message them. But I, but I remember um, I think it might have been. The well, I was watching the first Starcade maybe from 83 and it's Gordon oh, Soley yeah. and Gordon Soley is on commentary and he mentions you. He, he mentions you and and how not, you know, how you were there. I think it's Starcade. He mentioned you by name and how and how he if I remember correctly, he, he gave you a gift or you gave him a gift or something like that. But he just you could tell that he liked you very much. He mentioned you directly on the air during the so, show. Do you know what I'm talking so about? That might have been. a Yeah. So that if it was Starcade, I, I don't remember the specific um, thing you're talking about. But Gordon, I, I became terrific friends with Gordon and Gordon's wife, Smokey, was an artist. Ah, that's right. Because he mentioned his and a wife. Very good artist. He mentioned yep. that so, he and okay. his wife had both met you or something like that. Yes. So this would have, my guess is this would have been Starcade 85. Ah, so okay. um, I was married in, in um, May of 85 and uh, Gordon gifted us with a beautiful vase, handmade vase that his wife had made. That's it. So he was probably referring to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, G Gordon was terrific and, you know, just all this stuff with WCW and down at TBS and then later on. Um, with the videotapes that we did, the Lords of the Ring and Ringmasters videotapes. Oh yes, um, that he co-hosted with Bill Apter. Uh, yeah, he was he was just terrific. I mean, again, a, a character in his own right. <laughs> that that Lord of the Rings tape. Let me tell you something. That for for people like me that were you know around at that time. I mean, that is like the holy grail of wrestling tapes. I mean, it's also the first one. I I had it. And then I got, I threw it away like an idiot because it was VHS. And then I recently tracked it down again <laughs> on eBay 
and I got a copy of it. Of course, it's VHS. I copied yep. it over to DVD just to make it easier to watch. But of course, I still okay. kept the VHS in the box. I mean, you know, because I got to tell you, as a kid, why that tape was such a big deal. All a lot of us were only getting WWF stuff spoon fed to us, you know, and it was the mainstream. It was on every in every market and all this stuff. And especially if you're a kid and you don't really know how to find other stuff. And here comes this tape where they're giving you this showcase of wrestling from everywhere. That's not WWF. And it gave you this this idea of a business that is so much more. Uh, I don't know what the word is, so much richer and 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 has so much more going on than just this one company. And it was a, like a, such an eye opener for a little kid, this tape. Yep, it was. And, and I, I, I can't let um, discussion of, of Lords of the Ring tape uh, or the, the Ringmasters tape go by without mentioning uh, Jeff Otto and John Berzicelli, who. Uh, the genesis of it was they brought the project to us originally um, at PWI and wanted to do a, a videotape. And then Bill did a lot of the scrambling to get the actual uh, clips for the tape. And then we all went into a studio um, to cut, uh, you know, for, for Bill and, and Gordon to cut uh, segments for in between the, the matches and do voiceovers. Um, and Jeff, still friends with him to this day. Um, John Berzicelli went into politics in New Jersey. Um, but yeah, those guys did a tremendous job. I'll, I'll tell you a story about Lords of the Ring. Yes, please. Interesting. Um, and you know, so before, of, before I, you do, but just one second, yeah, before you I, do, you, you know, um, we have to break for commercial. No, no breaking. No, I, I have a little <laughs> extra info here that you might be interested in. Oh, okay. So, so this podcast, Shut Up and Wrestle, it's part of a, a, a network, the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network. And there's a great show, which is sort of like the flagship show of this of this network called the 605 Super Podcast, hosted by Brian Last. And he got an interview. I believe it's with Jeff. And you, you should look this up if you could find it or maybe I'll send you the link. It's fantastic where they go into what you're talking about, the behind the scenes of how the tape got made, how it got brought to PWI, how it all happened. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you probably think, know it I all. Bill but... sent, I think Bill sent me the link. Was it yes. about a year ago? About that, yeah, I would say maybe a little there? more than that. A, a couple of years okay. ago. Yeah, I, I, I think I heard that. But so, so the thing that I remember about this was, you know, it was Gordon. We used to call one take Gordon. <laughs> um, you know, they turn the camera on, he'd do his thing. One take, boom, because he, he was he was just so great at what he did. He didn't. He barely had to think about it. He would just do it. Um, so at one point there was a boy. I'm trying to think back. It was a Tully Blanchard match. Maybe you remember um, who he was wrestling on in, in in the clip on the Lords of the Ring tape. It was Tully oh, against? I don't oh, know. Boy. I don't remember a Tully match on that tape. I could be. Maybe it's been a while since I've seen it. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was a Tully. Well, in any event, was it the Magnum um, TA? No, this was before that. The Magnum it TA. Been before I that. But in in any event, um, Gordon had to do it was about a minute and a half clip, and Gordon was going to do the play by play voiceover. And I said, you know, I'd, I'd like to try that. Like, all right, get in the booth, just do your best Gordon Sully impression. <laughs> like, right. And now I'd seen this, I'd seen this ninety second, two minute, whatever it is, piece of tape, probably a hundred times, right? So I knew it inside and out. 
get in the booth. And I, I, I didn't put on a Gordon Soli voice, but I tried to do like a real announcer's play-by-play of what was going on in the video. Put the headphones on, watch the tape, and I was horrible. And in, in that two minutes, I gained such an appreciation for what Gordon and any other announcer in any other sport for what they do. Anybody that thinks that stuff is easy does not know what they're talking about. Right. It is really, even if you know, if you know in advance what's coming and just to make it sound smooth and make everything flow, it's really, really difficult. So, I mean, I got out of that booth and I sort of threw the headphones down and I was like, man, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's I, not for me. My well, hat's off to you, Gordon. Well, you know, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that. And, and I think you alluded to this before, but there are those clips floating around those. And I have, and, and before I was, um, before we spoke here, when I was just kind of, um, you know, preparing for this, I watched a couple of them where it's, it's you and Bill and you're doing these kind of like interview segments, you know, and, and I remember seeing yep. one from Georgia where you're interviewing King Kong Bundy and, and you're asking him, you know, why do you always do a five count and all these kind of questions and things. And yeah. <laughs> uh, it was interesting to me that that was one of the things that really put PWI over as this respected, you know, voice in pro wrestling for fans because people would see you guys on the actual shows like you know doing interviews and taking part in the programming and i I think that went such a long way to making it all seem so uh you know like authoritative you know absolutely i i remember i remember shooting a pay-per-view in baltimore and walking out to the ring with my camera and kids running up to me with pwi in their hands wanting me to autograph it and I'm like, what? <laughs> no, Bill's over there. You don't want me. <laughs> Bill's over there. Or the wrestlers will be out in a second. You know, ask them. It was, it was very strange. Well, that would have been me. I would have been one of those kids if I happened to be there. So <laughs> those are the things that I notice. It's funny, especially now when I watch old wrestling, I'm looking at all those little things. Who's at ringside? Who's wandering around? Little things that are happening like that, you know, who, who's um, who's the timekeeper, all the, who, who's lurking around the entranceway. You can sometimes see people poking their heads out. Like I remember at a couple of old WWF shows, you could actually see Vince Vincent uh, McMahon Sr. In, in the entranceway there, just kind of watching yeah. the proceedings and things like that. I remember the first time, the first time I, I ever went to. Uh, I wasn't even photographing wrestling. I think I just went with Bill um, to accompany him on the trip. And we went up to Allentown. And Allentown, Pennsylvania. And Andre the Giant was at the tape. You know, Bill was doing his Bill stuff. And this was 81, right? So it was before Hulk Hogan and before we got kicked out. And Bill still had a pretty good relationship with everybody. Um, I think Vince Sr. was still firmly in charge of things. But I'll never forget sort of my first my first impression of sort of the behind the scenes world of pro wrestling was Vince interviewing Andre, and you know Vince is a tall guy. I don't know what what is he like six, maybe something like that. I mean, he's a big guy. Yeah. And they had a platform that was built, and there was a notch. Cut
cut out of the platform, right? So the platform's like maybe six inches high, something like that. And so Vince would stand in the knots. So Vince is standing on the floor and Andre's standing on the platform so that, you know, he'd be able to look up <laughs> at Andre instead of maybe you know, it would have been closer to eye to eye if they were both standing on the same level. But it was sort of that uh, little bit of behind the scenes um, magic. <laughs> from the world of WWF TV taping. But uh, yeah, I, re- I remember that at Allentown, Pennsylvania. That's crazy. So you can confirm what has long been suspected. People have, a lot of times I've heard that story. I've never, I don't think I've ever heard it from somebody who actually witnessed it that they I would have. It and I can confirm it. And they uh, would have Andre <laughs> stand uh, only in the world of wrestling where you have a guy who legitimately, he probably was around that seven foot mark, maybe slightly, slightly oh, yeah. under, but you would yep. have him stand on a platform so that you could say he was even taller than that. That's amazing. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, did you, did you have any dealings with Vince senior at all? Did you ever interact with him or, or, uh, in no, it, or... no, not really. I was, um, nah, not, not with senior, not with, uh, you know, I'd see him walk by in the, in the hallways of the garden, but no, nah, I never had any interaction with him. Right. And, but you were, I mean, in those days, you guys were at pretty much every garden show, right? I mean, in those, in oh, those yeah. before the band and that would, the band would be what, like 85? Uh, the band, I, I want to say 84, maybe. Okay. 84. Or it might have been late, late 84, early 85. Yeah, so it was Hogan. before the first WrestleMania. I, I believe so. Yeah. I don't want, well, I, I you don't guys say weren't categorically. Yes. But I, Think right. It was, yeah. But you, so you, you guys were not at the first WrestleMania, right? Because I'm pretty sure the band would have been in place by that point with Hulk Hogan not and Mr. Ring, T and all that. Yeah. Right. What about the yeah, night I, I that Hogan? We were, were, yeah. That Hogan took the belt from. Shoot. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. I was in the garden that night. I think Bill, I think Bill was ringside for that, if I'm not wow. mistaken. I, I have to go back and check. I, I was definitely in the stands for that. And just, I mean, the pop was deafening. It was more so than when Snuka um, hit the mat going after Backlund. It was unbelievable. That you but, can I mean, even the tell. Those days yeah. was just great. I mean, it was just, you know, wh- whether it was Hogan taking the belt or, um, you know, it, it could have been an SD Jones match. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, it could have been any, the, the, the crowds at the Garden just had such phenomenal energy. Yeah. Um, and like some of my favorite matches in those days were uh, Morocco Morales. Holy mackerel. I, I don't know how long that feud went on, but um, boy, every time, every time they came out, the place went out of their minds. Bruno would show up. The place would go out of their minds. Um, it was just red hot atmosphere like nothing else. I still say that Morocco you know, from everything I've ever seen, I would always call him the greatest intercontinental champion of all time. I just thought he was such a great bad guy, great person to hold that belt. And, you know, the matches he would have and the promos and how he could keep it going for so long. Like you said, those feuds went on and on and him and Pedro Morales and then him and and Jimmy Snuka and just a great, uh, a great heel, a great champion. He he was one of my favorites. I I remember the first time I went to take photos at ringside of, of Morocco, 
Stu warned me. Stu Sachs warned me. He goes, watch out. He's a spitter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good to know. I guess you need, you need to know in, in yeah, your line you of work. Yeah, you dodge that every once in a while. Right, right. Oh, that's that's too funny. That's too funny. So what around the WWF circuit, then were you how did it work? Were you guys pretty much just doing the garden or did you do other WWF big shows like the Spectrum and Boston Garden and things like that? Um, I didn't. I think Bill did some. Um, we would do some spot shows now and again. Right. You know, I think they would come back to the high schools or whatever it was. Um, I think they did Nassau Coliseum. All right. A bunch of yeah. times we got there because that was very local to our office. Um, right, of course. Yeah, that, that would yeah. make sense because that's right. You guys were in Rockville Center back then. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Freeport, actually, before Rockville Center, we were in a town called Freeport, um, which is just a couple towns over. And were you were you already out by the time they moved to Pennsylvania? No, I made the move to Pennsylvania. So when when I joined, we were in Freeport. Yeah. Uh, a couple of years later, Stanley Weston uh, built a five-story building in Rockville Center. Um, he he always said wrestling built the first four floors and boxing built the fifth. Mm. Um, you know, his wrestling and boxing magazine. So we we moved to that office, and then he sold the company in ooh, the years run together. Was it ninety? Oh, I don't know. Ninety-three, somewhere in there. Um. I, I apologize for not knowing it exactly, but yeah, he sold the company to Kappa Publishing here in Pennsylvania, and a bunch of us uh, made the move down here. Stu, Bill, myself, Steve Farhood on the boxing side, and I was down here in Pennsylvania for eh, I guess maybe three years, something like that, three four years, and then that's when I ran away and joined the circus. <laughs> But you stayed but, in you Pennsylvania. Know, did you did you stay in Pennsylvania? I did stay in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I, I made the move and I've been here ever since. Wow. Um, and then once once Kappa bought um, London Publishing, they they did a bunch of stuff. They 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 sort of um, changed the nature of the magazines a little bit because they were they were a puzzle publisher. Right. They had a very um, they churned out a, I mean, oh, holy mackerel! I want to say something like sixteen hundred releases a year of puzzle magazines with a staff that was maybe smaller than what we had. I mean, they just they had it down to a science, and we were a very editorial heavy type of magazine, so it was a little bit of a culture collision. But you know, they they also bought a number of other magazines. They bought a country music magazine and gave it to us to work on. And I worked on that with Bill. Um, that was called Country Beat. Um, <laughs> Nigel course. Collins, who was the editor of The Ring magazine. Um, he was a big country music fan. He did a lot of writing for that. Um, he bought gardening magazines, teen magazines. Um, and then there was a nostalgia magazine called Remember, which I love. Oh, no, I know, I I know that. that one. Yeah, I know. I think that it might was still terrific. be around. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what happened to it since then, but that was that was sort of one of the magazines I thought could have been really big for the company. Um, and there was a bit of a uh, uh, disconnect between what the company wanted to do with the magazine and what, what I had suggested to do with the magazine. Plus, I wanted to bring PWI and, and the wrestling magazines online because, you know, this is 95, right? So it's still very early in in internet terms at the 
um, there weren't a whole lot of websites, but you know we were a niche publisher and so perfect for the internet. I mean, it seems obvious today, but at the time, um, it really wasn't as obvious and wasn't as you know, instantly accepted, so to say. So I, I, I sort of felt like, all right, you know, the thing wasn't working with Remember Magazine and they don't want to go on the internet. And they took me out of editorial and put me in ad sales for a while. And I was like, all right, I think my time here is sort of coming to an end after 15. Yeah, you could kind of That's see the writing on the wall there. Yeah, that would, a little that bit, would make yeah. sense. But, but um, you know, it, was, it was a great run, though, no doubt about it. And it's, so, so something else I'd, I'd like to say about the magazine, yeah, please. since we're sort of bouncing around all like this. And I've said this before in other interviews and I think other podcasts even. Um, in the, particularly in the 80s, sort of like at the height of Hulk Hogan and you know, when things were really, really riding high and riding strong, and PWI was outselling Sports Illustrated on the newsstands. Um, they had a few more subscribers than we did, but we were outselling them on the newsstands. And we were just, we were making a ton of money, but we had, we just had a tremendous staff. And it was, it was one of the most creative atmospheres. We were putting out a ton of product. We had PWI, The Wrestler, Inside Wrestling, Wrestling Superstars, Sports Review Wrestling, Sports Review Annual, Wrestler Annual, Wrestling 84, 85, a couple of others I'm probably not even, WCW Magazine we were, we were doing. Um, we were putting out all this product. We never missed a deadline. Um, we worked our butts off. But it was, it was magazine professionals putting out wrestling magazines, not wrestling fans putting out wrestling magazines, which is not to disparage wrestling fans putting out wrestling magazines. Or right, but I know what you generally. mean. Yeah. But yeah, but but we, I mean, I mean, we would sit and have hour-long debates about the Oxford comma. I mean, we were we, a lot of this <laughs> came out of journalism programs and and college publishing and. We, we took this stuff very seriously, but we had a lot of fun doing it. And the closest analogy I can come, there's, there's a great um, documentary about uh, the early days of television and Sid Caesar's Your Show of Shows. And if you're familiar with that, Sid Caesar's writer's room was um, Mel Brooks, Woody Allen. Um, Neil Simon. Neil Simon, exactly. You had these, these just, just incredible group of talent. And if, if you ever watched this documentary um, about Sid Caesar's, uh, your show of shows about the writer's room called Caesar's Writers, it feels like the atmosphere that they had was like what we had. It was just sort of this crackling energy in the air and everybody sort of bounced off of everybody else, worked to make everybody else. Like, like Stu has talked about this, about like we would sort of look at each other and knew what the other was thinking about you know a story an angle something to do for the magazine whatever it might be it was just and bill the same way and there was just this energy in the air where, where everybody lifted everybody else up and yeah we had a lot of fun but we did great work and it showed in the magazines and i used to tell writers that we worked with listen you know when you're writing the story you got to have fun writing the story otherwise the person reading it's not going to have fun and i think that showed and oh it did it was just sort of that kind of very unique working relationship among all of us that is is very rare in any business and like i said that the, the sid caesar writers room is the closest thing i've ever heard of anything else well to it. but that's it, it was really something special for for a number of years 
what you're saying, I mean, is, is definitely backed up in, I remember what Stu said when we spoke here uh, on the first episode and what I've heard from Bill over the years when I've picked his brain about it. And, and, you know, it absolutely did come through. And I think I probably could speak for a lot of readers of it, that, that it came through that you, you folks were having the time of your life doing this. And, you know, (laughs) I've often said this, but I'm jealous. And, and I mean, and I'm saying that in the sense that even though I, you know, I worked for WWF slash WWE magazine, you know, I mean, I worked for what in some ways was, if not the best, I don't think it was the best, but at least the most high profile wrestling magazine that there ever was. But, but yet I was jealous of what you guys were doing. And, but I will say that even at our, you know, that at our best, even on the staff of WWE publications, there also was that kind of environment, that camaraderie that we were doing something that we really enjoyed. Uh, you know, we we had to deal with a lot more corporate politics and crap than you guys did, I'm sure. But but I mean, we, right. we at during the best of times, we were having a great time and it brought everybody together, like you said, in a weird way. Yes. You, you had this camaraderie that. I have never had in any other job I ever held where, and I was very young when I worked there. So I assumed that that's what it was like everywhere, you know, and it wasn't, but like this closeness, I remember in some ways I used to compare it to almost like, you know, in Goodfellas where all the gangsters are like their families all know each other and, yep. and they, and yeah, they, go, exactly. they go to each other's functions. And like, I, I think about this now, I can't imagine doing this at any other corporate job I ever had where my kids' birthday parties. I mean, just like in Goodfellas, I would invite people from the staff of the magazine with their kids to come over, you know, and, and I would never really do that at any other job I ever had. To this day, I still get together with some of them, and I know you guys still get together. I've seen the photos online. Yeah. Stanley we, Weston came to my wedding. Oh, my God. You see, but that's what I mean. That's what I'm talking about. I And I have people and, and, you at know, my and wedding, sure you, too. And I'm sure you experienced the joy of this too is that at the end of the process you have this physical thing in your hand that you worked on it's yes. like i i did this you know i contributed to this you know we we all contributed to this this is this is really i can hold this in my hand this is awesome i know and i've never uh, forgotten that feeling i have a copy of every issue i ever worked on i'm pretty sure every single one at least one copy and and even to this day with the PWI stuff that I do, and I also write for a new magazine called Inside the Ropes out of the UK, um, yep. you know, I keep a copy of everything. I insist on having the physical that I could hold in my hands. That feeling never goes away of, of you see it, you know, you see it on a newsstand rack or you, I mean, those are going away, but you see, you see it in a, <laughs> in your mailbox or wherever you see it and you just I have to go through it. It's like I'm 25 years old again. I got to like flip through it, find my article, look at it. I mean, I mean, it's the, it's the most ridiculous thing, but it's that, that feeling never goes away. You know, you know, Stanley Weston's name just came up and I got to, I, I got to tell you a story about Stanley Weston. Because, sure. um, you know, I was, I was hired again. I told you a little earlier about, you know, how I, I joined the company in 81 and I, I didn't necessarily really want to, but, you know, once I got there, I saw, you know, what the staff was like and what the atmosphere was like. I was like, oh, this is a pretty good deal. So a couple of months after I started working, and I want to say I started working maybe late spring, early summer, something like that. A couple of months in, I got mono. And I had a really bad case of mono uh, to the point I was in bed for 
few months. Um, my blood values were so whacked out, they thought I had leukemia. Oh, I was God. in really bad shape. Stanley Weston said, don't worry about it. There's a job here for you when you come back. You just rest up and get better. This is for somebody that was working for him for maybe two, three months. To, you know, to sort of you know, give someone that kind of security right off the bat is just impressed me no end. But that was the kind of guy he was. You know, he was very, you know, he was loyal to the people who were loyal to him. Right, and, right. Uh, I, you know, I, I can't imagine other bosses, any boss anywhere right. doing things like I, I guess they're out there. You know, it's, it's, it's nice when you hear stories like that. But, yeah, he was, uh, he was very good to his employees in, in his own way. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've heard people through the years that worked for him complain about him. Those complaints I always felt were very unfounded. Mm. Um, he always treated me extremely well. I think if I have any regrets working for him, it was that I didn't really get to know him that well. I, I, I would love to have spent time um, hearing him tell stories about his early days in magazine publishing and uh, right. you know the people he knew and the things that he did, because I'm sure he had a million of them. Sure, because he went back in, in wrestling magazines and boxing magazine back to the 50s, and right, and he was... Yeah. He was even before that, I think when he was like a kid, maybe even in the 40s or earlier, he was doing some of those illustrated covers that the Ring magazine used to do. Yep, exactly. Yeah. He painted quite a few covers for the in, Ring. In those and Matt again, Fleischer here, days. Yeah. Yep. So, so here's another circus wrestling crossover. <laughs> uh, when I was working for Feld, one of the shows that they uh, were putting together was um, a stage show based on R.L. Stein's Goosebumps books. Are you familiar with those? The, of course. The sort of like what parent is for kids. Really? Yes. Exactly. So um, I had opportunity to have lunch sitting next to R.L. Stein. And we're sitting there and we're talking back and forth. And um, I'm telling him about, you know, how I started in my career and the wrestling magazines and, and how we wrote them and the process and, and the whole bit. And he said that was exactly the way he started his career. Except he did it in movie magazines. Oh wow! Magazines. And the movie magazines, you know those those classic, um, you know this star has a romance with that star, or sure. you know this star has a what, whatever. Yeah, you know, it's almost like wrestling headlines from back yeah, in the day, like those L.A. Confidential like kind of things. Yeah, exactly. That kind of, you know, yeah. He that's that's what he did, and they those magazines were produced in very much the same way as the wrestling magazines were in the seventies. And Oh, that's fantastic. I never knew that about him. That's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. Those, those magazines in those days, I mean, God, I could talk about it forever, but what a unique time that was really. And I understand now why people try and collect as many of them as they can. I know I do. I have a, like a storage room full of them, uh, you know, that it's just a window to, to another time. There's just, something fascinating about it and and you got to be a part of that is it's just um that's something <laughs> it's hard for me to put into words it's just such a unique um thing to be able to say that you were a part of that i just i know i'm gushing about it but that's one of my favorite <laughs> topics is to find you know maybe it's because i'm you know a magazine guy and i've been a wrestling magazine guy in my own way so you know to get to talk to these people from the era of when I was a kid reading them and even before I was born is just 
fascinating to me. So, I mean, well, I can't thank you enough you for doing this. Well, and you were a part of it too, right? Like, I was, I, I mean, was. I was, I was a magazine guy growing up. I mean, you know, when I was in even high school and high school, I, I was a big comic book fan. So, I mean, I bought everything um, that came out from Marvel and DC and Charlton. And uh, I was constantly at the newsstands. So um, not just comics, I would, I would get other stuff. I'd, I'd look at well, Mad Magazine, of course, but um, you know, the '70s was a great time to be a fan of magazines. National Lampoon was yes. heavy metal, good in those days. Heavy metal magazine, exactly. Savage Sword of Conan. Yep, creepy, eerie, Vampirella, all of those, and even other stuff like um, you know, Liberty Magazine was a nostalgia magazine. Uh, actually, Liberty was a magazine that published earlier in the century, but um, you know, they came back in the '70s for a while, and there's just Anything that was on the newsstand that was sort of odd and, and niche and interesting and unique, I, I would just snap it up and, oh, let, let me check this out. This looks, this looks cool. And, you know, I think that the wrestling magazines, and this, does, this isn't just the, the London magazines. I mean, this includes WWF magazines. And you know, I, I, I think the wrestling magazines are part of a line, and they don't get credit for this. Uh, I don't think enough, but they're part of a lineage that stretches back into the forties, right? So if you go into the history of magazines and you think about the forties, the pulp magazines, yes, where, uh, you know, like for, for a dime or a quarter, you'd get 148 pages of detective stories or mystery stories, you know, the shadow doc savage, all that sort of stuff. Um, and those sort of morphed into the movie magazines later on. And, you know, boxing magazines and wrestling magazines, it's sort of all of a kind. It's all part of like an American communications magazine history lineage. And the wrestling magazines are absolutely a part of that. And um, I don't know, somebody someday is going to do like a really detailed sort of cultural history of magazines in America and yes. hope they don't leave out the wrestling magazines because they really are a, a pretty important part of all that. I think they, they really need that special treatment. You're right. There's never really been something like that. Uh, looking back. I mean, like you said, you see it with like the pulp novels. I have a book that does it for like the old men's um, adventure magazines, that yeah, kind the, of thing. The sweat magazine. Like those, right. Them, those, right? those, those <laughs> macho men magazines. There's that. Yep. And of course it's in been fact, done for, in fact, one of our art directors, um, Charlie Foster, one of our art directors at uh, PWI, um, uh, worked for those magazines. Oh, that makes perfect sense. For the Men's Sweat magazine. Yeah, in fact, he, <laughs> at, at one point, remember in television video game? Of course. I, had a, I was an Atari 2600 guy, but I do remember. Okay. I, I had an Intellivision, and I traded my Intellivision for three cover paintings <laughs> of Men's Sweat magazines with Charlie Foster. <laughs> I think I think you got the better end of that deal. I, well, I, I I have since sold two of them, but I still have one, which is just a really cool sort of 1950s That's fantastic. jungle kind of, you know, three uh, juvenile delinquents in the street sort of thing. So, yeah. I have a, I have a book that came out um, that collects a lot of the great stories and articles from some of those magazines. You know, that's the kind of thing that I was thinking of. I mean, God knows has been done ad nauseum for comic books and classic comic books right. 
all the right. time. I mean, even, you know, even like nudie magazines from the mid 20th century, every everything's yes, had its absolutely. day except for classic wrestling magazines. And who knows? I may I may just one day be the guy to do it. We'll see. But something like that has to be done. Yeah, do it for Tashin Publishing. You know, yes. They'll, they'll put the nice uh, nice package around it. I know, I know. They may be the first ones I call. But uh, and, when it, and when it does happen, I'm going to be knocking on the doors or ringing the phones of all you guys to, to, to pick your brains about all this stuff and, and just like we're doing right now. So that'll be, hopefully, maybe, maybe it'll happen. You never know. That'd be great. And um, I'd love to see it happen. So I know that. Yeah, God, I mean, I'm <laughs> now you got me really thinking, but this has been uh, so much fun to do. I, the, these magazine conversations are kind of like my secret favorites just because that's my that is my my sweet spot. So, you know, now I've had I've had Stu, I've had you and that, now Bill will have no choice but to do it. He's got to do it now. He's going to hear this and it's going to make him want to jump on the shut up and wrestle bandwagon so i have to thank you craig for taking time out oh, to, entirely to do this. my pleasure and as i'm sitting here i'm looking at the clock i'm like wow we've been talking for an hour maybe a little more yeah and i'm thinking like there's 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 so many stories that we could go on for like another four hours we could well you know <laughs> we could <laughs> uh, but but here's the good part about it i always say this i always like to 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 end it in a way that there really is so much more to talk about so that people can come back. And I haven't, you know, I've only been doing this a couple of months yet, so I haven't had any return guests yet, but almost everyone I've had, it's been that way where I just know I could bring them back and there'll be so much to talk about, you know, which is so much better than, you know, having nothing left to talk about where you just, well, you everything's next, been done. Next time we do, so, so next you got to get Bill. Yes. Um, Cause he can't, he can't run away and I'll, I'll bug him next time I see him. But then after that, you should get Bill, myself, and Stu all on the phone simultaneously, and then we can like tweak each other's memories oh, and bounce yeah, off you know? each other and probably right. remember things that I couldn't remember on my own. And now that I finally splurged for the premium Zoom subscription, which I was a cheapskate before and I wouldn't do, I actually have the ability to have multiple people on a Zoom call at one time as the host. Awesome. So maybe that will open the door for that. That would, that would be great. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun, Brian. Anytime. Oh, I appreciate uh, it. Thank always, you, Craig. Always fun uh, driving down memory lane. Lots to see. There you have it. My conversation with Craig Peters. And what a conversation it was. I hope you learned as much from that conversation as I did, because I, sh I sure as heck did learn a lot. I'm always open to learning new things about the wonderful weird and delightful world of old school wrestling and that is what we talk about here each and every week on shut up and wrestle so keep listening because i've got some great guests coming up in future weeks let me give you an idea of some of the people that we're going to be having we've got on the horizon carrie williams wrestling writer carrie williams you may know her from slam wrestling and other places we will also have the wonderful scott teal known for his wrestling uh biographies and also his own photography and work in various aspects of the business we've got bradley craig coming up and he's involved with the international pro wrestling hall of fame very fascinating guy of course as i've mentioned greg oliver is on the way speaking of slam wrestling he's going to be coming up soon 
Um, and the noted wrestling producer, promoter, and general raconteur, Evan Ginsberg. Everybody loves Evan, one of the producers behind um, the Darren Aronofsky movie, The Wrestler. Evan is always a pleasure to talk to. He's going to be coming up as well in the weeks to come on Shut Up and Wrestle. So how are you finding Shut Up and Wrestle? Well, there's many ways. There's our website, suawpod.com. Of course, there's also uh, the many platforms where you find great podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, Podcast Addict. It's all those places and more. That's where you can find it. And as far as my work goes, of course, my biography, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, available on Amazon and wherever you buy books. And I have a limited number of signed copies available. If you are looking to buy one of those, please reach out to me at Solomon at yahoo.com. Um, you can find the articles I write in Pro Wrestling Illustrated at pwi-online.com as well as the magazine Inside the Ropes, which you can buy at InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. And if you're looking for me, God knows why you would be, but if you're looking for me, you can find me on social media. I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. And if you go to Facebook and search Brian Solomon Writer, you will find my Facebook author page. And there's links on all those social media platforms to my official author website, which I recently updated. So you might want to check that out. So as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in. You've been a wonderful audience. I'll be here all week. Try the veal and don't forget to tip your waitress. So long, wrestling fans. 